This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, world-renowned architect Tatiana Bilbao shares some insights on her practice. Liam Goward and Andrew Hardy of paper and stationery brand Pith pay us a visit, plus a tour of Vitra's London showroom. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Mexican architect Tatiana Bilbao is known for her sensitive design practice that focuses on cultural and housing projects. Since establishing her own namesake studio in 2004, Tatiana has gone on to become one of the world's foremost design voices, with projects in Mexico, France and the US, and work that focuses on sustainable design and social housing. To find out more about her approach, Monocle's Polina Morova caught up with Tatiana down the line. So I have always understood that architecture provides a primary form of care, meaning protection for the body. But for me, it's not only that. No, it definitely, uh, it provides that. But for me, what real architecture does is providing protection with the possibility of inspiration for life. I like to think of inspiration in a much more deep uh, understanding of it, of the word, meaning that it's a platform for a life to glow, you know, not in the such in the romantic manner of inspiration. It was never so planned. I finished school and I I was invited to work for the Minister of Social Housing and Urban Development in Mexico City. I was thrilled actually when I, I heard that I was invited to work there because I was always very interested both in the most important unit that provides protection and inspiration for a life, which is a domestic environment, social housing department, but also the production of social space. I was always very interested on it, which is urban development. I started working there and I realized that um, really kind of working within the, the doors of the government was very hard to create anything that really enhanced any because of all the political, economical, financial interests that are there that really collide with the interests of the people and what people really need. I always also saw you know, that the people that were doing things and changing policy for the government were external consultants. So I said, well, I think that creating grounds for public and for housing and for public space, it's much better in the, in the private realm. So I went to found my own office, my own um, studio, with the aim really of being able to impact in a broader sense, more as an umbrella rather than uh, understanding architecture as a, an objectual act or something like that. So you mentioned that you started with the design of social housing. It's interesting because I wanted to ask you about um, how do you think public space and domestic environment evolved over the time since you started? It has happened in these 20-something years is that I think that the fact that we are completely surrendered to capital has accelerated in many regards. No, So public space and housing had become very contested spaces much more than were before because now they are completely surrendered to the market forces. In our city, uh, what has happened is like that every space has been taken by private companies and exploited in whatever way, meaning that 
even all the services that were used to be done by the city, like garbage recollection, gardening, you know, cleaning the streets, have been given to private entities, both in, in forms of sponsorships or in forms of contracts, which um, obviously what happens is that they need to have revenue from it no, in, in any regard. So they have become private spaces, the majority of them. And on the other hand, also because of the kind of lack of capacities of governments, other services have gone uh, really, have been in detriment, no, let's say. Uh, for example, security issues in Mexico, it has become uncontrollable. So people prefer rather to, than going to a park to go to a shopping mall because it's more protected, it's more secure. So that's where they spend their recreational moments. And the same has happened with social housing. The land has become so contested and so um, expensive that there is no more room for affordable ways of living in the centers of cities anywhere in the world. It has become so commoditized that um, there's very few areas left to work uh, that realm. So I think that, yes, a lot of things have, have changed and not necessarily for the good. So how would you say that change then informed the way your practice works? How do you approach a project? Do you work for private clients or government? How does it work? We're actually um, reinforcing our ideas behind what the built environment should be in many ways, doing research, pursuing also academic endeavors to create knowledge you know, around it. And with that, we create a basis of thought that a lot of projects just come you know, from people that identify that that is the ethos of what they want to do. And some other instances, we do work that we think politically is necessarily, you know, like uh, really trying to um, invest a lot of time and thought in policy making or in policy pushing, let's say, because we're not making anything, we're trying to push things, or advancing conversations um, along the people who are doing institutional projects or participating in the program of reconstruction for houses that were torn down by the earthquake. That's something that we moved. Those are the things that we really push. No? And then the rest of the projects really arrive no? because people that are pursuing kind of these same issues or same ideas, you know, would arrive to us and uh, would ask us for collaborations. And this is like the projects, this is how they start. Everywhere. Could you tell us a bit more about your current projects? We're working in incredible projects, hyper diverse as always. We're still working with our botanical garden since 17 years ago. At the same time, we're doing a monastery in Germany, you know, so it's like kind of uh, very different realms. And we're working in very, very interesting projects in Mexico City of people that really want to uh, create kind of a different possibility of inhabiting the center of the city. So these two projects are in the in the central area and they are flexible mixed use of communities, no? thinking that in this place, Everything, every aspect of the life of a human can be held by a community. And how does that work? So uh, we are working in those two, which are very, very interesting. They're very recent commissions. 
We're working for a different house typology in St. Louis, Missouri, in in two blocks in the city. It's really rethinking the way U.S. cities um, kind of are uh, consolidated, no, with these notions of neighborhoods and roads and roads and roads, miles and miles of single houses just next to next to each other, and we're challenging that. We won a very interesting competition in Paris to do three buildings of flexible use in the limits in between the city and the bandeus uh, in the Périphérique. It's also one of these projects of the um, ambitious plan of Paris 2030. Uh, we're just finishing a research center for the Sea of Cortés in Mazatlán, which is a really incredible building that we conceived as a ruin <laughs> to be inhabited by nature. What would you say your aspirations are for 2023? And perhaps how do you want your practice to change in the future? I think that ahead of us lies a big crisis. I really think that the crises are the only moments where really humanity is able to produce a change. And I think we urgently need it. We have exhausted this model of society that is completely surrendered to production. We really need to to really transgress that, not to understand uh, that this is not a path because it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable in many realms. The core point is that to exist, we need to produce. But we seem to forget that to produce, we need to exist first. All the instances for our bare minimum existence are now dependent on production. So if we don't have money, we cannot exist literally right now. No, that's really bottom line. And this is not how it works because for that society to continue in this circle, we need to produce more and more. This is where we are, no? more and more and more and more. But to produce like that, we need to exploit everything, the planet and the society and the people. And it's not infinite, it's finite both our human resources and physical resources are limited. For me, the transformation needs to come from accepting as a societal thing that we need to exist first. So focusing on how to hold bodies to exist in a much more simple, direct way, rather than passing through all this system of needing to produce in order to hold them. I hope that in the future that happens. Changes take a lot of time. So we might not see it, but hopefully they they start happening in the year 2023. That's what I see. And how can we be part of it? By trying to create buildings that really hold bodies to exist, not to produce, not to make them more efficient to arrive to their working, producing, buying places more efficiently the other way around, to hold those bodies to really recognize that the labor that is done there in those spaces, not only by the building itself, but what is happening in the building, are essential to our lives. Tatiana Bilbao there, in conversation with Monocle's Polina Morova. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs program. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time 
as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. For a furniture brand, a showroom is of the utmost importance. It's a space that allows customers to see and physically touch wares to gain an understanding of scale and proportion. It's also a space that allows a brand to embody its ethos and outlook, something that Switzerland's Vitra has done in its new showroom and office in London. Monocle's Grace Charlton recently paid a visit. Swiss furniture company Vitra's new showroom and office space is located in Tramshed, a Grade 2 listed building in East London. The spacious hall was built in 1905 in a classical, turn-of-the-century style to host the Eastern London Tramway's electricity transformer station. Till Weber, the creative director of sonography at Vitra, was tasked with honouring the heritage of the building with its brick facades and stucco detailing while giving it a distinctively Vitra look. Weber, who trained as an architect in Frankfurt, New York and Zurich and has now been at Vitra for 15 years, tells us more. First of all, it was interesting for us to have the opportunity to rent a, a magnificent space in Shoreditch in such a lively neighbourhood where also some of our designers such as Barbara Oskeby or Jasper Morrison have their offices, their studios, um, but also to give a new home to our UK team. While looking at this and trying to serve all the needs, um, also figuring out that the tramshed itself offers lots of opportunities. Um, while we have a main space, a great hall with lots of daylight from coming through the skylight, but also we figured out a basement, which we call now the gallery, which is a lovely industrial um, white space. And last but not least, we have this annex building, which will be open in 23. I think that it is particularly nice to have such a chance to open in an historical building because it might be much easier to deal with the white box. But I think the project shows, and it was worth the, that was exciting part of it, this opportunity to react, to, to find answers, to... To, to find new ideas, solutions, um, which we would never had in a white space where you can just simply do what you want in a way. I feel that this was very exciting to, to do, to react, uh, find answers. For Vitra, reconsidering the space without interfering too much meant stripping back to the building's essence and ensuring that the space could work as a Vitra collage with a showroom, office and an area for the team to host events and meet each other face to face. I think looking at it, a major job was like to clear out as much as possible to kind of move in again. And it's a bit like I thought, earlier that it's not minimalistic architecture what we tried to get rid of so many things which might distract from the old beauty we considered the space that is is a space for collaboration for meeting for hosting clients for bringing in people to inspire to show the collection 
um, to show new pieces such as Avalon or the Softwork, but also to yeah, simply inspire. But also like offering opportunities to simply hang out, the retreat on the mezzanine where it is like some space which connects maybe more to a home-like interior where we have the opportunity to show the so-called vitra collage at its best in a very warm, homey um, way. We might have some edgy points of a certain color tone or of certain objects which might be hopefully also in a positive way irritating but on the other side I think just getting excited by seeing nice color combinations, good material choices, beautiful shapes of classic furniture pieces and contemporary ones. Weber's time spent perfecting Vitra's color library also helped when creating Tramshed's soothing palette of brick reds, creams and sage greens. Walking in, the harmony of the colors is instantly attractive and helps tie in a segmented and multifunctional space. And I think the most challenging part is for, for me and the team that we have to figure out the way of balancing it out between being a nice showroom, an inspiring interior and a staff office. So I think this is tough, but also I think in the way we managed it now is nice because the historical building with its existing materials helped us in a nice way to guide a little bit with material choices. So, for example, the way we decided that we only use one certain cream white, off-white, a little warmer tone, which blends in nicely with the cream-glazed bricks, but also like uh, specifying a terrazzo for the countertop, which is a little bit more sparkles of dark green and red shades and but based on cream white stones helping to blend in the new pieces more smoothly in a way but still make them outstand and yet like within the furniture selection and the materials we were like taking a lot of different green shades but also some apricots or like having this silver reflective curtain which becomes more an object than just the curtain by reflecting a little bit but also then having like for example like silver leather cushions taking out or picking this color in the silver and a mirror table so all these little things come together and create the different spots in the interior and make it maybe more exciting than just a regular office interior space do you believe in color enhancing different moods I totally do. I did work on the Color Material Library together with Hella Jungerius for more than a decade, I would say. And I totally believe in the color affect the mood, but also make it more um, enjoyable to um, experience a space, but also to live in a space, same as a furniture design does. Yeah, for sure. For Monocle in London, I'm Grace Charlton. Pith is a design-minded, UK-based paper and stationery company that's committed to producing beautiful products with minimal environmental impact. Established in 2020 with a focus on balancing functionality, quality and sustainability, the brand conceptualises, develops and makes its hand-finished wares in its factory in Northumberland. Its co-founders, Andrew Hardy and Liam Goward, recently made the journey south to London to have a chat with this show's producer, Maylee Evans, about their craft. So me and Andrew met about two and a half years ago. I think it was about six months before the first lockdown. 
Andrew's a printer and manufacturer by trade, um, and I'm of a design background. Instantly, we'd already started talking about making books together in some way, shape, or form, just because those two industries marry very well together. And we both had a bit of a gap that we thought the stationary market had, that we were both not satisfied with certain things. From a design point of view, I always felt things were over-designed and fussy. And I really wanted to strip away a lot of things that, that were on the market already. By the end of the first lockdown, we were able to create samples in Andrew's family's factory. They have a book printing factory in Berwick-upon-Tweed, where we're based. So we were lucky to have the facility to be able to prototype quite quickly at a reasonable cost compared to what it would normally be. So by the time we were getting towards lockdown two, we'd created the brand, we created a set of products. Initially, it wasn't supposed to be a commercial project. It was for us. It was for our passion, and we wanted to fulfill something for us, a design problem that we felt hadn't been solved, which was to find the essence and the core of what a quality sketchbook or notebook should be. So from there, we delved into lots of different creative areas and tried to consider and communicate with creatives from different mediums and what do they use notebooks for, what would assist them, because most things on the market really gear towards quite a generic set, you know, your dot grid, line, blank, which obviously has its reasons for that, but there's so many other little gaps in there that aren't fulfilled. And as soon as we started giving samples to friends, the feedback was just quite overwhelming of what we created. A friend of ours, Dave Watson, who's an artist, he's probably uses a sketchbook every day of his life and has done probably for the last 40 years at least. We gave him the first sketchbook and he said, if you're not doing this as a business, can I have a lifetime supply of them? Can I buy a thousand? How many will you make for me? So from there, it just sort of gave us the, the backing that, we felt we could actually maybe do it, and quite quickly it... Just snowballed, it didn't it? Snowballed, yeah. yeah. And from your perspective, coming from that printing, I guess, background, what were those things you wanted to try out when it came to that production process? Two sort of elements to it, one of which was the sort of sustainability of the materials that we were using, which was such a key thing when we first started, knowing exactly where our products were, all the raw materials were coming from, and that they were like considered as much as possible. A, to give us sort of the best quality that we're looking for, but as I said, also the responsibility in terms of we're knowing it's coming from FSC certified forests. So material choice was like really important for us. I mean, we spent months, didn't we? Yeah. Trawling through paper catalogs, saying that with pens and yeah. trying different things, sending bits of paper around to different friends and colleagues and things like that to try out till we actually got settled on actually what we're happy with today. There's quite a lot of materials that are used in traditional bookbinding that have been used for centuries, and a lot of the techniques are still the same, which is really, really interesting mm. arena to be in from a design point of view because there's not a huge amount of innovation that can happen there, really, in terms of making a physical book. But yeah. how it performs and what it's made of, there's a lot of room for improvement. We in no way say that we're perfect from an environmental standpoint, but we're on a journey and we're trying to seek materials that are better than what has already existed. We're having a lot of conversations around glue at the moment, which to most might seem mundane, but to us it's such a key part of our product and it's the most harmful, but unfortunately there's not a huge amount of alternatives that function as well as what we use at the moment, which is PVA glue. We're constantly having conversations and trying to find researchers and people who are willing to experiment with different materials.
When I think about stationery, it's offering a blank page for others to be creative, kind of fostering creativity. So what are the different ways that you can do that? So in terms of the design, in terms of how we we made the books, they're very sort of pared back. There's not much elements which is distracting or anything like that. So it really allows whoever's using our products to really input their own sort of creative ideas and things fully onto the page. We're the stage in which creatives perform. We're not the performer, so our job in a way is to get out of the way and blend into the background. So from a performance point of view, we, we spend a lot of time getting the binding right on the books, for example. So a lot of people will know in stationery the term lay flat is used a lot. A lot of books on the market are bound like that, but then they're covered in a way that completely restricts that. So we covered our books in a way where they're they're section sewn and then they're glued by hand, cold, which gives them the maximum flexibility. And then we don't cover the spine, so the book can completely open flat, creating a flat surface across the spine, which not a lot of other stationers out there do. There may be some listeners who, who the only maybe marker of a quality bit paper is GSM, and that's maybe as far as they've thought about it. What could you tell listeners that maybe they should look for when they are wanting to seek out a quality product? What do you think is really key to, to a beautiful piece of stationery? Material is, is really the predominantly the main factor in terms of a nice bit of stationery. But the smoothness of a paper, how rough, how smooth it is, whether it can take pencils correctly and things like that. As you mentioned, GSM, but that's only literally the tip of the iceberg when it comes to paper and materials. There's the thickness, the whiteness of the paper, how opaque it is. So many different variables that you should be looking at when looking for for a quality stationary product. We recently changed sketchbook paper, for example, which is in three of our products, the Aura Blanco, Tangelo and Cabosu. We were having it made in Germany originally, but a constant mission of ours has been to close our sourcing circle as much as possible. So the closest one of our materials can be made to where we produce the books in Berwick-upon-Tweed in Northumberland, the better. We moved to a British mill and we, we tested for a long time and tested with artists, with the creative community, tested what materials they were using, how it was performing with those materials. And we've tried to select a hybrid sketchbook paper. So... It's not at the thicker, higher end of GSM, which is used for watercolour. It's it's a mid-range, which handles a wide variety of materials, which is is great from from a general sketchbook point of view. It's just been so organic with how we've scaled up our production. So we're now a team of three manufacturers, plus ourselves, me and Liam. It might change in a few few weeks' time, might not. But at the moment, it's so nice and refreshing to not be pushing certain areas so heavily and we're just naturally finding our feet in terms of how we're growing. We were pretty determined from day one that a core part of what we wanted to do was produce in the UK and specifically where we are in Northumberland because we have the facilities there. I don't think that's something we would ever want to change. And I think... There's a question when you're trying to be responsible environmentally, there is a cap to how big you can be. That's just a fact. I think there'll be a point where we will probably stop growing. But for now, we're growing nice and slowly and we're not in any rush to do that. And we, Andrew's, you know, really on it with quality. Um, and to keep that quality, it's very difficult to outsource manufacturing especially when you start crossing seas and you're having to fly materials and products 
you know, all over the world. So that's something we're very conscious of trying to keep a lid on. And we love where we are in Northumberland, so yeah. why would we want to make them anywhere else? <laughs> <laughs> From doing everything in-house, we can keep a, a, a good good control on the quality and all the manufacturing processes that are actually going into our products. And these processes are changing every day, so we're constantly developing how we're actually manufacturing so we can make them a bit quicker, a bit more efficient, and to a higher quality as well. I mean, the, the guys in the factory do such a super job every day, but every day there's new ideas on how we can do something slightly different or reduce the amount of sort of waste that we're using in terms of some of the paper waste, in terms of print and whatnot that we're actually producing. From a design point of view, being able to design upstairs prototype and literally have something printed and made immediately is such an incredible tool to have as a designer and be able to go and touch the materials immediately that we're using. We have great freedom in that, that we can yeah. have crazy ideas. I mean, it's that's like why... It's w- Willy Wonka and his chocolate factory. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Liam Goward and his, uh, his uh, wonderful bookmaking Book factory. factory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Andrew Hardy and Liam Goward of Pith there, in conversation with Monocle's Maylee Evans. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>